Well, we're gathered here this morning to what? Why are we gathered? And what should our gathering be like? And what should we do as we gather as morning church? And why should we do it? And how should we make sure that our gathering as morning church today is spiritual? Do we need some candles? Do we need miracles? Do we need speaking in tongues? Do we need stained glass windows? Do we need more music, more singing? What does a spiritual church meeting look like? What does it consist of? Are are our morning church meetings spiritual? They're all important questions, questions that we want to be able to answer clearly and confidently. And they're the questions that God puts on our agenda in our passage this morning. In case you've uh, not been here for the last couple of weeks, our passage this morning is really the conclusion to the Apostle Paul's response to the Corinthians concerning the issue of spirituals. He began it back in chapter 12, and we've looked at 13 and 14. Chapters 12, 13 and 14, this block of teaching concerning spirituals, spiritual people, spiritual things. The Corinthians, remember, considered themselves to have arrived spiritually. They boasted of their spirituality. But as we've seen, Paul really will have none of it. We've seen him take on their foolish pride uh, already. But our passage this morning, at the start of it, he really steps up a gear. So let's have a look. Verse 20. Let's see how he kicks it off. Verse 20. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil be infants, but in your thinking be adults. Don't be a baby. That's always a harsh thing to say, isn't it? Hard thing to hear. No one likes to be called a baby. But that's what the apostle here calls the thinking of the Corinthians. It's a stinging rebuke. It's a little bit softened, perhaps. He calls them brothers. But there's sting in his words there in verse 20. Especially there's sting when you take into account what he's already written earlier in the letter. Way back in chapter 3, Paul has already called them babies and back there in chapter 3 he explains exactly what he means. Don't, you can look at it later but back in chapter 3 and verse 1 he wrote there, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. You see the Corinthians boast was we're the mature ones, we are the spiritual ones. But for Paul he can't address them as spirituals because they were so worldly. They were so shaped by the values of their world. They weren't spirituals. They were babies. For the Corinthians, that would have been a stinging rebuke. And Paul repeats it here in, verse, in chapter 14 and verse 20. Stop thinking like children, he says. You keep boasting about how spiritual you are. You keep parading your spiritual gifts. But you're worldly. It's time to grow up. It's time to think like adults. It's time to think like true spirituals. And with that rebuke, the Apostle turns to focus particularly on what happens as they gather as a church. Now, not uh, surprisingly, there's lots of continuity and overlap with the first half of chapter 14 that we looked at last time. But this morning in our passage, Paul's focus shifts just fractionally away from an individual within the church family, we saw that last time, and more this time onto the church gathering as a whole. But like last time, he's still applying the way of love to the Corinthian situation. 
But whereas last week it was the way of love applied particularly to gifts, today it's the way of love applied particularly to the church coming together. And as you can see on your outline, in verses 20 to 25, it's the way of church with particular regard to outsiders. And in verses 26 onwards, it's the way of church with a special regard to insiders. So point one on your outline. Let's turn to verse 21. And once again, like we saw last time, it's their thinking concerning the gift of speaking in tongues that the apostle targets. And once again, like last time, he puts tongues and prophecy head to head. Verse 21, let me read it. In the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners I will speak to this people. But even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. Do you like riddles? Here's one for you. Johnny's mother had three children. The first child was named April. The second child was named Mary. The third child was named... Someone whispered it. Well done. It's a riddle. And the answer is Johnny. Okay. The reason I'm talking about riddles is that Paul's logic here in verses 21 to 25 is a bit like a riddle. It's tricky. And we need to think it through carefully. He says that in verse 22 that tongues are a sign for unbelievers and not for believers. That in itself might surprise us. But then in verse 23, he seems to contradict himself. Have a look at verse 23 with me. hope your brains are switched on. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? If tongues are a sign for unbelievers, that seems to be a strange response. And then to complicate things further, in the very next verse, Paul describes a situation where the unbeliever comes in and everyone's prophesying and he's convinced he's a sinner, he falls down and worships God and exclaims, God is really among you. And from all of that, from verses 23 and 24, it might seem, it, you might have expected Paul back in verse 22 to say that tongues are a sign for believers and prophecy for unbelievers. But what he says, in fact, is that tongues for unbelievers, prophecy is for believers. It's a bit of a riddle. The way forward to help to start to solve the riddle is the quote that Paul begins with in verse 21. It actually comes from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, and chapter 28 and verse 11. And if you were to go back this week and read Isaiah chapter 28, you'd discover that it's really a declaration of judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. They had turned away from the Lord. And in the chapter, chapter 28 of Isaiah, we discover that in their unbelief, they had rejected the true message of the prophet as too simple. And they had mocked Isaiah's message. And so the Lord's response through Isaiah is the one quoted by the Apostle Paul in our passage. Basically, he says, very well, if you won't listen to the simple word of the Lord when he speaks through the prophet, I will speak to them through the lips of foreigners. I will speak to them in the strange tongues of foreigners. Who are these foreigners in Isaiah? None other than the Assyrian army. What will they be doing? They'll be invading them and conquering them wiping them out and on the basis of that Paul says in our passage tongues are a sign for unbelievers 
Now, I think we tend to think instinctively that, uh, that a sign is a thing of help. Signs help us. They show us where to go. But not all signs are like that, are they? If you lived on the side of a volcano and you heard rumbling noises and felt the ground sort of shaking, that will be a much more negative sign. For the Israelites, back in Isaiah's day, there was no help at all in the strange tongues of the Assyrians. With the coming of them, all the Israelites could expect was judgment. Or in the words of Isaiah, uh, in, our, in our quote, even then they will not listen to me. They were a sign, but they were a sign of judgment. And Paul sees exactly the same thing happening in Corinth. Verse 23, unbeliever comes into the Corinthian gathering, hears everyone speaking in tongues. They cannot understand anything. It is unintelligible to them. It seems as if the Christians there are out of their minds. They won't listen. The result, judgment. They receive no truth about God and they therefore cannot be brought to faith. They remain under his condemnation. Doesn't help them at all. Now that may well have been the very opposite to the thinking of the Corinthians. Perhaps they felt that their tongue speaking was overwhelming evidence that God was present among them. Overwhelming evidence of their spirituality. Perhaps they saw their tongue speaking as great testimony even to the unbelieving community that God was with them. But for Paul, that's childish thinking. Just like last time in the first half of chapter 14, it's the lack of intelligibility, it's the fact that you can't understand them that robs uninterpreted tongues of usefulness in the church gathering. It delivers nothing but judgment. On the other hand, prophecy is of great benefit because whatever it is precisely, it is intelligible. It is able to be understood. Prophesying is more loving than tongue speaking for it builds up the hearer. In fact, it's prophecy, the clear communication of truth that is the mark of genuine spirituality. And that's clear in the life of the believers. Paul's already made that point, hasn't he, last week in the first half of the chapter. He's already shown us, if you glance back at verse 3 of chapter 14, that everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement and comfort. Prophecy is for the believers. But the superiority of prophecy can even be seen in its impact on unbelievers. And that's what Paul goes on to describe in verse 24 to sort of almost emphasize his point. Verse 24, but if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will, not be con- sorry, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and will be judged by all and the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. And so he will fall down and worship God exclaiming, God is really among you. There's still judgment notice. But this time it's judgment that leads to belief. Now I know the way Paul makes his point here is difficult and I find it a bit hard to understand. But the point that he is making is very clear and very simple. It's like last time he is showing the superiority of prophecy over tongues and once again his reasoning is exactly the same. It's because of intelligibility. Prophecy is to be preferred to tongues because it is able to bring help to those who hear. Even, Paul says, almost the clincher, even to those who are unbelievers. For the Corinthian case study back there and then, prophecy was to be preferred to tongues because that's how the way of love ought to have worked itself out within the Corinthian gatherings. 
and it should be evident in our gatherings too. In our church gatherings, love should be the thing that determines what we do. Love that builds up. Love that is gracious and kind. To think otherwise, Paul says, is naive and childish. It's not to be spiritual, but to be worldly. Now, Paul's not urging the Corinthians here to make their gatherings entirely evangelistic, entirely aimed at the, at the unbeliever. The situation he describes is one where the unbeliever arrives and almost overhears what's going on. It's not an evangelistic meeting. It's a, it's a normal gathering of believers. But it's friendly towards unbelievers. It's intelligible to unbelievers. It can even lead unbelievers into belief. It's loving. That's the Apostle's point. Love should drive what we do as we gather. And love builds up. The same principle is seen in the verse that follows where, where the Apostle's focus shifts from outsiders to insiders. Point two, verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. It's that last sentence again, isn't it? That's the key. That's really the verse 12 principle from last time. Our goal, according to the Apostle Paul, is the strengthening of, the, of one another. It's the building up of one another. And it's that goal, it's that principle, which leads on to the Apostle's instructions from verse 27 on. He firstly deals with speaking in tongues. You see in verse 27, if you glance at it with me, what he does is Paul limits the number of speakers. He says two or at most three and only one at a time, and interpretation must take place. And if there is no interpreter, there is to be no speaking in tongues. Why those instructions? Why those limitations? It's pretty straightforward, because the whole agenda of the apostle is the strengthening of the church. The agenda is love, building up, and uninterpreted tongues offer nothing to the rest of the church family. Speaking in tongues happening all at the same time offers nothing to the church family. edifies no one. And so Paul forbids it. Just notice in passing that Paul's assumption is that the person who speaks in tongues remains in control of their gift. Sometimes in contemporary tongue speaking or or more other extraordinary um, so-called manifestations of the spirit, it's the lack of self-control. It's that spontaneous loss of self-control that is pointed to as evidence of the Spirit's power being at work. It was especially the case, if you remember, in the Toronto Blessing, um, you know, with those uncontrollable fits of laughter and, and so on, things like that. That is exactly the opposite to the Apostles' teaching here. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Self-control is evidence of the Spirit's presence, not the other way around. And that's clear in these verses. Two, two or three are to speak, one at a time, and then only if there is interpretation. If not, stay silent. Once again, let's, not, let's uh, make sure we can, we can see the principle that lies behind the Apostle's instructions here. It's the strengthening of the church. I'm going to be saying it all morning because the Apostle keeps on saying it over and over again. It's the strengthening of the church, plain and simple. It's the same when he turns to prophecy. Verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For we can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. 
The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. What I want you to notice is all the similarities there between the apostles' instruction regarding prophecy and tongues. Once again, he limits the number. Once again, he imposes order. Once again, he assumes self-control. And whereas the tongues had to be interpreted, can you see what, happens, what has to happen with prophecy? has to be weighed or tested. Now, we thought about this last time a bit briefly, didn't we? New Testament prophecy has less authority than Old Testament prophecy. New Testament prophecy can be wrong. So it had to be weighed, had to be tested against the authority of the word of God, of the scriptures. The scriptures, of course, are where the final and full authority rests. And any prophecy, just like any words spoken in a church gathering, have to be measured against that. It's got to be in accord with the Bible. And that measurement, that testing of prophecy, according to the apostle, was to be in the hands of men not women. That's what Paul goes on to talk about in verses 33 and to 35, just when you thought maybe the tricky bits were behind us. Let me read. Pick it up from verse 33. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. For the apostle, women should be silent during the testing and the weighing of prophecy. He must be talking about that. He can't be talking about any time during church because already in this letter, in chapter 11, Paul's already said that he is happy for women to prophesy. He's clearly happy for women to participate in the gathering, to be speaking. But here, he's talking especially about this weighing, this testing of the prophecy. Back in chapter 11, he talks about women being free to prophesy. But back in chapter 11, he also asserted that there is an order of authority woven into creation between men and women. Man has been placed in authority over woman. And back in chapter 11, when he makes that point, Paul takes us back to Genesis chapter 2 and inside the Garden of Eden to show us that. Now, can I quickly say, that doesn't mean that men are more valuable than women. That's not true at all. Our problem is we immediately tend to think of people in authority as more valuable than those who are under their authority. But God doesn't think like that. It's pretty uh, straightforward to work out that he doesn't. Christ, the Son of God, submits to the authority of his Father. But Christ is not inferior to God his Father, clearly. So if you're hearing me or the Apostle right now saying that women are inferior to men... You are completely wrong. However, there is a relationship of headship between a man and a woman that is seen in the law, Paul says, back in Genesis chapter 2. That's what Paul refers to in, in chapter 11 of this letter and here too in chapter 14. But what we need to appreciate and understand is that God's notion of headship is one of responsibility and one of loving service. Okay? It's not ruling over someone. It's one of responsibility and one of loving service. To be in authority, according to God, is to be a servant of the person whom you lead, a servant answerable to God. That's seen in Adam back in, garden, in the garden and his great failure. 
but it's seen most perfectly, of course, in the servant leadership of Jesus, who gives himself up for his church in loving sacrifice. What does that mean for for a church family? Well, what it means is that within a church family, the buck stops with the men. Within a church family, within this church family, according to God, 